our God and Father, you bring your kingdom through small, unimpressive things. And this morning, as I preach, I'm all too aware of how faltering and feeble and inadequate my words are, and indeed our hearts are to receive. So I pray that you would be at work and that we would all have confidence that as we hear you, you will be growing us, um, however able or not we are, are to measure it. So please be at work now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Matthew 13 and got a few more parables today, but just before we get to the parables, I want to ask you this question. How would you, um, with, with kind of the eye of your mind, look around at the world and how would you finish this sentence? If I were God, then I would, what? What's the, end, what's the end of that sentence? If I were God, then I would what? What comes after that? What do you expect from God? What needs fixing? Now, you're not alone if you think that life should not look like this, whatever it is you're thinking is a particular problem. If God were in control, that God hasn't met your expectations. Something, it's something plenty of people, Christian and non-Christian, have thought for many centuries. It's even there in the Bible, people saying, well, I just don't think life should be like this way if God were in control. There are so many better ways to live, um, uh, to live life than trusting in God if this is how he's going to be, if this is how he's going to act or not act. And in question, um, sorry, in Jesus, that question actually becomes an awful lot sharper because the claim of Jesus Christ, of course, is that here God has actually showed up. I remember years ago doing um, a course called Christianity Explored, and I was on a, on a table with several people there, and one of the people on the table wasn't a Christian. And he said to me as we were reading through Mark's gospel, well, you know, if if I were God showing up as a man, then I think I'd fly around in the sky and sort of write in fireworks and get everyone realizing just what is going on. Flying around in the sky in fireworks, I don't know what you'd expect if God showed up. And it sounds a little funny, I guess, the way he put it, but actually, I get it. I understand the heart of that. It's saying, I have expectations about how God should act. This is what I'd do if I were God showing up in the world. And the life of Jesus just doesn't fit the bill. Now, God is quite clear in his word. He is not constrained by our expectations. In fact, he is God. He works in ways quite beyond our comprehension. The old hymn, even though it's a real cliche, nevertheless gets it right. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Jesus is a perpetual disappointment to people who want a God that fits their expectations. Those who first encountered him, the Pharisees, the religious experts, the teachers of the law, the civic rulers, in fact, people actually from all strata of society, thought this guy is distinctly unimpressive, perhaps even dangerous. Why did they think that? Because their expectations of what God would do if he showed up were definitely not this. And it has been so ever since. And yet in Jesus, we're going to keep making the claim that God has shown up he might not be the saviour we expect, but he is most definitely the saviour that we need. And our parables today, once again, Jesus gives both invitation and judgment. Trust me on my terms, receive a kingdom that lasts forever. Don't trust me, and actually these parables will be that which pushes you away because they will be speaking about you and speaking judgment. But he says, you need to trust me. God's kingdom which is God's holy rule, 
which is God's kingdom is, is people who are trusting God as their king, to put it in, in shorthand terms, does not come like you would expect. And really, I think the message today is don't judge Jesus by appearances, but by promises. Don't judge Jesus by appearances, but by promises. He will never disappoint you, no matter what it looks like to those who are on the outside. But first, as we go through these parables, I want to to think about them from two angles. And the first one is these parables all show that Jesus fails to meet our expectations. In these three parables, you have God's kingdom coming and growing in surprising and mysterious ways and times. So first up, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And the, the point of this is there is still evil in the world. I mean, that's the simple message, isn't it? There is still evil in the world, even though the king has come. The question that the owner's servants ask him in verse 27, um, didn't you grow good seed? Where where did the weeds come from? Shouldn't we go and get rid of them? It's like people saying to God, God, I'm looking at the world around me and I'm seeing evil flourishing. Why aren't you doing anything about it? In fact, that's the, the, the sort of um, theme of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. And the psalmist there says, in vain have I trusted God and kept my heart clean. Why? Well, because I look around me and I see arrogant, prideful, evil God deniers living really great lives, flourishing, getting away with all manner of things. Their, their bodies are fat and sleek and all this kind of stuff. They, things are really good for them and, and yet... Yet God's people seem to really be having a hard time. And the psalmist says, I nearly slipped because I look around and see evil choking good. And that just doesn't fit what I think God should be doing in the world. And I think that's kind of what's going on in this parable. The parable itself, in one sense, it's fairly straightforward. What have you got? Well, man owns land, plants wheat. An enemy commits an act of trespass and industrial sabotage and plants a load of weeds. And both wheat and weeds grow together. The weed, is, the weed is probably a poisonous grass called darnel, and uh, in its early stages of growth, it looks just like grain. And yet when it grows up and matures, it has a smaller ear and narrower leaves. And that's why it ruins the crop. You don't realize that it's there until too late. None of that information was available in my head. I read it in a book. But it's a pretty reliable book. So that's what seems to be going on. That's what these weeds are. And that's why they can grow alongside wheat so easily. And the owner's servants question him on this. They say, oh, oh master, where has this come from? Should we go and separate things out? And you read, no, verse 29, um, it's too risky. Let's wait until harvest time when we're pulling everything up anyway. So it's a a proverb or a a parable about patience, biding your time. Things will hopefully turn out okay in the end. Is that a general principle for life? Well, sure it might be. But that's not what Jesus is doing with it. There's a lot more going on than that. And later on in the passage, skipping over the mustard seed and the yeast or the leaven, Jesus explains the parable from verse 36. And unlike many of the parables Jesus tells, this one actually has quite a sort of sophisticated um, link between things in the parable and things in real life that Jesus wants to be teaching about. So you've got in verse 37, the sower is the son of man, the field is the world, good seed 
sons or people of the kingdom. The weeds are people of the evil one. The enemy is the devil. Harvest is the end of the age. Harvesters are angels. So, so there's a lot of kind of links going on there as you read through the parable. So go back to the parable and let's have a, just a quick read through and see how it makes sense once you kind of put those pieces in place. So what have you got? Well, the son of man sowed people of the kingdom in the world. While his servants weren't looking, there's no blame attached there, I don't think, the devil came and sowed sons or people of his own kingdom amongst God's people. When God's people grew, those people who are opposed to God become known, but they look an awful lot like God's people. And then the son of man's servants come and say, hold on, we thought you'd only put God's people around the place. If this is your world, why on earth are there people that don't belong to you, that are opposed to you? Shouldn't you be getting rid of the evil around them, <laughs> the evil around us? No, the son of man, the son of man, a divine figure, representative of God on earth. Jesus calls himself the son of man. No, the son of man answers his servants. I want you to wait until the end of the age. Until then... Let the world remain filled with my people and evildoers side by side. So, Jesus says this is what God's kingdom is like. In the world, it's present in Jesus. Jesus is kind of, in one sense, the kingdom of God. He is it at its most concentrated. The kingdom is present in those who trust in Jesus, but it exists in a fallen world with evil and suffering, and it will remain that way. Its growth will be entangled with opposition and hardship. Its growth will be difficult. The world hates me, Jesus said. Somewhere else in John's Gospel, it will hate you as well. Now notice the response of the servants in this parable, verses 27 and 28. They don't like it. Surely God's kingdom wouldn't tolerate existence in the muck and grime of this world. And this may be kind of the voice of the religious leader's expectation. They know because the Old Testament tells us God is pure holiness. No one can survive in the presence of the living God. There's no way if he showed up that his kingdom would tolerate existence right alongside its opponents. He'd get on with weeding right away. But Jesus says it is not so. The world remains broken. People still mess up. God's kingdom, brought about in Jesus and his followers, will continue to exist in it, alongside it, suffering the effects of it. That's not what I'd do if I were God showing up. But that's judging by appearance and not by promise. Let's have a look at the next couple of parables, the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, or the mustard seed and the leaven. And the same point is being made in both of these parables, Jesus and his kingdom are unimpressive, hidden, and slow to show any effects. So let's think about the mustard seed first. A tiny little black speck, probably in mind here, not the sort of slightly bigger yellow ball bearings that Schwartz sell that you can put in your pulled pork rub or whatever you use them for. Um, now, someone might say with the mustard seed, aha, a mustard seed is not absolutely the smallest seed ever to exist. Gotcha. The Bible makes mistakes. That's not really the point, is it? Jesus isn't speaking as a botanical encyclopedia. He's, he's referring to that which in the ordinary scheme of seeds on the windowsill in the kitchen, the mustard seed is the smallest of those seeds. It is tiny, it is insignificant in its beginnings. It's pathetic. I mean, if you held up a mustard seed and said, this is a really big deal, people would laugh at you. It's nothing but a speck. I noticed something else interesting. 
about the parable, the man um, took the seed and planted it in his field. That's unusual. The mustard seed is a kitchen garden plant. You don't put it in the field. That's not a safe place to put it, and it's pretty ambitious. Why would you put it out there? Well, that's rather like the kinds of claims Jesus is making about his presence bringing the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's, it's, it's not even that it's tiny. It's, it's kind of pretty ambitious in what he's claiming about it. But it's, it's the tininess, it's the speckness that's the focus here. This is how God works when he shows up. A speck of dust buried in the ground. What kind of hope would lie there? And then the parable of the leaven. From the field to the kitchen, now Jesus gets us picturing a woman baking bread. And it's like yeast or leaven, uh, a bit of fermented dough that she mixes into a very large batch. Enough bread, um, I read, to feed about a hundred people or ten of me. A tiny pinch in a massive batch of bread worked in, mixed around. This, Jesus says, is God's kingdom facing the world. Absolutely tiny, huge task in front of it. And plus, what's interesting in this instance is that yeast or leaven often, but not always, is associated with uncleanness. It's quite a subversive point Jesus is making. And Jesus, I wonder here if he's recognizing that he and his disciples committed to the will of God above human convention kind of ruffle feathers. They, they are seen as troublemakers. They actually don't really fit in. They're seen perhaps as some sort of pollution in polite society. Hardly a successful optic for them. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you're thinking of me, then I, I get it. But, but the point here is we're a tiny pinch of this leaven. And again, the same message. This is not the expected triumphant arrival of God's kingdom showing up. And these parables reveal reality. Jesus is the reality. He is the key to the kingdom. And if you are judging by expectation, well, sorry, judging by appearance, then Jesus fails expectations, doesn't he? There's no triumph. There's no cleansing. Just hanging out with sinners before dying a lonely death and being buried in a borrowed tomb. He lived and died surrounded by weeds, by evil, entangled amongst it, never giving into it, And he was a tiny speck of dust buried in the ground. Weak, foolish, unimpressive, unclean, undesirable as any kind of leader or saviour. And in fact, on the cross, he was mocked. In Matthew's Gospel, we read people mocking him, saying, he who would save others, let him save himself. Jesus' kingdom is marked with insignificance, puniness, and defeat. But, as each parable shows us, God's sovereign work means that he will get his way in his timing. And actually something much bigger is going on. So if Jesus, on the one hand, these parables show us that Jesus fails our expectations. From, a, from the, the other angle, let's take the parables as a whole. Jesus blows our expectations out of the water. The, so the parable of the wheat and the weeds, let's go back to that one. Jesus says, let them grow up together until the end of the age, until the harvest. The, the people of the kingdom, Jesus' people, will be kept safe even as they live in the midst of danger and evil. They are preserved. That is the promise. The Son of Man says they will enter into the glory of the kingdom of my Father and now their Father too. And, and notice right at the start, uh, verse 24, 
these good seeds, these people of the kingdom have been planted by the Son of Man himself. And if he planted them, he preserves them. But as well as that in this parable, of course, we have the other side, which is that evil is destroyed. Perfect justice is served. No one gets away with it. And back in one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73, the psalmist struggles with seeing evil flourish. And the turning point for him is when he says, until I entered the sanctuary, until I went into the temple and saw the place of sacrifice, the place where I am reminded that God is just, that God hates wickedness, then he realized God has a bigger plan in mind. God does things in his own ways, in his own time, and he never misses anything. God will serve perfect justice. But as you read this, the, the weeds bundled and burned, and then over the page from verse 40, the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire. Verse 42, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And is there a part of you, it's certainly a part of me sometimes that goes, why can't God save everyone? Maybe that's how I do it, but then I'm not perfect. I don't love justice at the very core of my being. Here in Jesus, we have the most just person and the most loving person ever to walk the earth being crystal clear. The Old Testament was right about God's holiness. The holy God will not tolerate evil in his presence. It will be burned up. He will destroy those who pursue their own glory and reject his. He will put all things right. One writer says, whatever the precise meaning of these strong hell, fire, and brimstone words from Jesus' lips, this at all events is certain, that they point to some doom so intolerable that the Son of God came down from heaven and tasted all the bitterness of death that he might deliver us from ever knowing the secrets of anguish, which, unless God be mocking men with empty threats, are contained in these terrible words. Jesus is inviting you into the kingdom, but part of that invitation is to say, this is the consequence for not following me, not finding your salvation in me. It's intimidating, but it's ultimately good news. Justice is served. And then Jesus blowing expectations out of the water, the parables of the, the mustard seed and the yeast again. You can see in both of them the same idea. What starts as tiny ends in triumph. That is the message of these two. The mustard seed is now dominating. It is the only tree in town. And Jesus is using imagery here found in the book of Daniel, and particularly Daniel chapter 4. There, King Nebuchadnezzar is dreamed a dream from God, and he has a vision of a tree which represents a kingdom which is going to rule over all. And he says this, Daniel 4 verse 12, its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Now, he goes on, this, this is given to another, and so on and so forth. But um, on, in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4, whoever gets it um, is, is actually pointing to the re, sort of bigger reality that is this. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. 
And so as Jesus is kind of, it seems to be drawing on that kind of imagery, he's making the point the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of, of men, over the kingdoms of this world. God rules supreme. And in fact, he gives, he gives those kingdoms to the lowliest of people, the ones who seem most unlikely. God is that in control. He is that powerful. The only kingdom that lasts forever is the one that God builds and the one that God gives. Starts off as a speck buried in the ground, but God builds it. And Jesus says of this kingdom manifested in his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God gets his way, even as he uses ordinary and insignificant means to get there. Corinne shared with me this week a lovely story of Bible translators in China. And one of them said this, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can't count the number of apples in a seed. Once a seed is planted and becomes a tree, you can never tell how many apples it will produce. It's the same with the word of God. You can never tell what God can do with your gift of the Bible. God uses what seems to be insignificant to bring about amazing results. And it's the same story, of course, with the yeast. At the end of the bake-off, the yeast is everywhere and it's not going anywhere. Our sovereign God uses tiny beginnings to change the world. A mustard seed underground, a pinch, in, a pinch of yeast in a massive batch of dough. See what they become. And of course, the other thing that, that is in common in these two parables, the seed and the, the yeast or the leaven, is that growth is gradual and it is often hidden. It's not always obvious and it takes time. The kingdom of heaven isn't available on Deliveroo. You just punch in a few keys and there it is, it appears. God isn't in a hurry, but he always gets what he wants in his way according to his timing. Don't judge by appearance, but promise. And remember, to really get the parables, you need to have faith. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Trust Jesus according to promises, not by appearance. His own life and death are weak, foolish, and insignificant. But to the eyes of faith, his death is the power and wisdom of God for salvation. At the, the very end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 27, the buried speck of dust, the dead saviour, Jesus Christ, is seen to be our saviour. In his death, we see in Matthew 27, his death destroys the grave. Tombs are split open as he dies. The temple curtain is torn in two. He brings about access to God because he does away with our sin. In the judgment of divine fire, Jesus is burned instead of us. In total defeat, Jesus wins absolute victory. And rising from death, he now towers as the tree. He transforms the world like that yeast in the bread with new creation. He makes it possible for his people to enter the kingdom of his father where evil is no more. So you see, these parables are not just kind of proverbially nice observations that, you know, great things come from humble beginnings. Mighty oaks come from small acorns. Turtles beat rabbits in races or whatever the story is. No, no, what we have speaking here, who we have speaking here, verse 35, things hidden since the creation of the world. Well, who can speak those things ultimately? It's the creator, the one who brings all things about. Things only the creator knows because he made them to be this way. Jesus is the sent son, the beloved of the father who speaks in the power of the spirit. When he speaks, would you listen? Because he makes promises that if you come to God's kingdom through him, no matter how dark things appear, you really will shine. 
And there's one detail from the parable um, of the weeds that I've left out. And I wonder if it's a hidden thistle sting. There's the detail that Jesus never explains. And I wonder if he does that because he wants to draw our attention to it. And it's this one in verse 29. While you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. That's why you're not to pull them up. All of the other details of the parable are explained in the later bit of the passage. That's the one bit that isn't. Jesus does not tell us what it means to talk about the wheat being pulled up with the weeds, and that's why he's going to wait. And I wonder, I wonder, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I wonder if Jesus wants his disciples to ask themselves, am I so sure I'm not a weed? Because the weeds and the wheat look the same. And the extra sting in verse 41, Jesus has been talking about the world, but suddenly he changes to talk about evil and sin within the kingdom. The angels will come and take out of the kingdom, his kingdom, not the fields, not the world, his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Actually, there are weeds, not just in the field and the world, but weeds in the kingdom. I wonder if Jesus' point is, don't point out there and say, there be sinners. Actually, we need to be aware that even in the church, in the kingdom, uh, which is manifest in the church, there could be those who look like God's people but actually aren't. In Matthew 7, Jesus is very clear on that. He imagines people who've been casting out demons and they are not part of the kingdom, and yet they say to Jesus at the end of the age, Lord, Lord, did I not do wonderful things in your name? Cast out demons, do these incredible acts. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It is a real sting. And it's not that, you know, some people are good enough and some aren't. The message of Jesus is very much no one is good enough and we all need to trust in Jesus. He is righteous. In him alone will we have righteousness that gets us into new heavens and new earth. I think Jesus is speaking at a slightly different level here. He knows that there are those who will point to their Christian credentials and say, look at the stuff I've done. But actually in their heart, they've never said, I want to embrace the king of the cross. And so back to the parable, I wonder if Jesus is saying to those enthusiastic servants who would pull up the sinners, before being too quick to say, be gone, ye sinners, Jesus, get rid of the weeds, Jesus wants to ask us, where do I stand with him? Don't point to your Christian credentials. Remember, weeds look a lot like wheat. But have I gladly embraced the insignificance, the weakness of the cross, and thrown myself on him for life? Well, I want to spend our final few minutes together just thinking about how these parables actually press into and give us a lot of help thinking about our Christian lives. What have we learned? That, that life in God's kingdom is hard, gradual, weak, and hidden. But because we judge not by promise, sorry, not by appearance, but by promise, it's worth committing your life to. What does that mean in a few different ways um, of the Christian living? Well, firstly, of course, can I invite you this morning to come to Jesus Christ? You would not do things this way, would you? This is not how you'd save people. The destruction of death through dying? But this is how God saves. He has dealt with evil and sin on the cross. And at the end of the days, there are only two options, only two kingdoms that you can be a part of. Well, one of two kingdoms you can be a part of. Which one is it for you? And you might be sat there saying, well, no, look, my sins and my failures are too big. I am too broken, I am too damaged. 
And I want to say to you, yes, but we all are. If you feel helpless and hopeless with nothing to offer, you fit the profile of God's kingdom. We cannot do it ourselves, but in an insignificant speck that was buried in the ground, God has saved us and changed everything. And just a word for those of you who perhaps feel like your own conversion story isn't very big or very dramatic. I mean, we all love it, don't we, when we hear these dramatic conversion stories of people who had these incredibly broken, difficult lives and come to Christ. And I praise God for those stories. They're amazing. Um, They're absolutely fantastic. But the message of this parable is God's kingdom grows quietly in a hidden way. If you've come to Jesus because your mum and dad brought you to church and you just realised, yeah, Jesus is all he says he is, or it's all you've ever known growing up, or maybe maybe just after a conversation with a friend you realise that this is the way, I want to say to you, that's huge. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't have that dramatic sound to it, but that is huge. That is God's kingdom at work. So come to Jesus. Secondly, living with Jesus Don't despise the way of the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, in the crucifixion account in Matthew 27, Jesus cuts a pretty pathetic figure as he's there on the cross, and he gets an awful lot of mockery. But I wonder if we're to ask ourselves, am I embarrassed by this? Am I reluctant to die to myself and look like a loser as I live like my saviour? The parable of the weeds shows the kingdom of heaven grows amongst evil. The church grows and so will opposition. And at times that's not easy and it will not feel like it's worth it. And at times like that, we need to dig deep and say, I'm not judging by appearance. Whatever my friends say, my colleagues say, my family say, I am judging by promise. Weakness and hardship and opposition, well, actually that's how God's kingdom works wonders. I wonder as well if there's a word here for us who come to a church in Hampstead. Maybe many of us are used to moving in spheres of influence having lots of stuff, having lots of power and impressiveness? Are we ready for the call to insignificance and weakness that Jesus gives? Maybe there are some of us this morning who are the opposite. Actually, we're quite ready to embrace weakness, but we feel frustrated that there's not much to offer. Well, God delights to use people like us. What feels minuscule is, in God's hands, full of power. Then there's that hard, hidden, gradual work of growing as a Christian. So thinking now about the yeast and the, le- uh, the, the mustard seed, maybe you're dealing with sin in your life and you're seeing very slow progress. You keep coming back to the same mistakes and you're desperate for that joy of the gospel, knowing the peace that passes understanding. Yes, that's hard. But remember, the Christian life isn't available on Deliveroo. You don't just punch in a few keys and expect it to come ready-made. It is slow work. It is hard progress as God works in you according to his ways and his timing. The final product is going to be glorious, but God's, God's kingdom is still present even now. The seed in the ground, the yeast in the dough, he is growing things in you. He is working. And a word here to parents particularly. It is a hard work discipling children. There are small moments of praying, reading the Bible, snatched conversations, maybe, maybe trying to teach some of the big ideas of the Christian faith. And what for? It feels like I'm not getting anywhere. Remember, a pinch of yeast leavens the whole dough. Mustard seed grows into a tree. But it takes a while for that dough to bake. Keep mixing. 
The kingdom grows slowly. It's often hidden. It's pretty much always hard, but that's okay. God is at work. God uses those little efforts to do really quite wonderful things. And then finally, as we finish, for the church. The parable of the weeds shows us that in the words of someone else, the time of waiting is the time of opportunity. The end of the age is not yet here, and God has work for us to do. And we might feel weak and insignificant here in Hampstead, particularly in a pandemic when we basically can't do anything. You know, I was talking with Gareth and Tom and Liz, I think I've spoken to you about it. Let's get a trombone quartet together and play that. Well, that feels, oh, what, what are we doing with that? Even things like that, God can, use, God can use my rubbish talents, I'm sure much better talents elsewhere, to accomplish wonderful things. I feel like I'm not doing anything when I play my trombone, but maybe, just maybe, God will use that to bring people into his kingdom. God does wonderful things through these tiny, insignificant works. We feel weak. In God's hands, we're mighty, and God delights to use us to grow his kingdom. That's his MO. And it's not a sign that things are going wrong when we face opposition. The frequent phrase, be on the right side of history. Jesus is the center of history. Be on the right side of him. Those who are righteous in Jesus will shine like the sun in the kingdom of his father, and now our father too, whatever it appears to those on the outside. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Amen.